0: The pandemic is officially over, but the virus that causes COVID-19 is not done with us yet. People are still getting sick and dying, and the virus is still mutating. To keep up with treatments and public health policies, we need to understand the source of it, says author and science writer David Quammen. He warned about a novel coronavirus spilling over from animals to humans and creating a pandemic more than 10 years ago. So is that how this one started, or was it a leak from a lab? The search for a point of origin is divisive, and it's political too. Of course, everything's political these days. David looks at the evidence and the debates in a piece for the New York Times magazine called The Ongoing Mystery of COVID's Origin, and David Quammen joins me now. Hello. Hello, Jesse. It's good to be with you. Why does it even matter where this thing came from?
1: Well... It matters because knowing the origin of this virus uh, will have an important role in setting research priorities for scientists who study such viruses, public health priorities, um, public policy, and pandemic protection policy for the future. We can't know how to protect ourselves against another event like this until we really know how this event began.
0: And are policymakers and public health officials making progress on a definitive answer, or are they in a holding pattern?
1: Well, that's what provoked my article, this Mm -hmm. long piece from the New York Times magazine. Uh, As of spring of this year, it seemed to me that we were in a great muddle. uh, And uh, there were strong opinions, um, not just in my country, but in a lot of countries around the world. On both sides of the question of where this thing came from, actually, I'd say there are three sides to the question. Some people say it's a natural virus, a wild virus that spilled over from a wild animal and got into humans, mm-hmm. probably in on market in the city of Wuhan. Some people say, no, it's a manipulated virus that was worked on in a laboratory and then it seems to have accidentally leaked from a laboratory and gotten into humans. And the third and most extremely, I suppose, paranoid or political view is that uh, it is an intentionally manipulated virus that was created by evil scientists in a lab somewhere, probably by this scenario in China, and intentionally released upon the world to cause harm. The third of those is embraced only by a relatively small fringe group of people. But still, there are people continuing to argue that. So with these three hypotheses on the table, um, we we still have this unresolved, although there is what I consider and many consider a, a strong preponderance of empirical evidence on the side of a natural spillover. But there is a strong preponderance of public opinion, and again, not just in my crazy country, on the side of a lab leak. So what I proposed to the New York Times was that I examine those two questions. First of all, where did this virus come from? And secondly, what I call the meta question, if the preponderance of evidence is on the side of a natural spillover from a wild animal, why is the preponderance of public opinion still seeming to weigh down on the side of lab leak. So I examined those two pieces, those two uh, questions uh, in this piece for the New York Times magazine.
0: This is the first pandemic where we've had the technology to gene sequence. How important is that in your investigation?
1: Well, this is not the very first big disease event where we've had the technology to gene sequence. That was done in a very important way in 2014 with the the Ebola outbreak in those three west african countries huh. which went on to infect 28,000 people and kill 11,000 people that's when some of these scientists started saying we need to sequence the genomes of different samples from different infected humans so we can trace the route of of passage from human to human and and hopefully identify the source of it, the spillover of that Ebola virus from a wild animal somewhere in West Africa. Uh, But this is the first time it was done on anything like the scale that it has been. By the time I I published my book, uh, Breathless, about this last October, we had 12 million genome sequences, different genome sequences of this virus as sampled from different people. And now, I don't know what the number is now, but we continue to to sequence samples. And that's how we know about the variants and the, and the changing variants, the continuing evolution of this extremely enterprising, changeable, mm-hmm. adaptable virus.
0: And does the viral sequence of SARS-CoV-2 look like any other viruses that scientists already know about?
1: Um, this, the first level answer to that is no. There are viruses, coronaviruses, that resemble this to the point of 96 or 97 percent identical genomes, the genome is is 30,000 letters of RNA long, and so to say that a, a, another virus is 96 or 97 percent similar, it means 96 or 97 percent of those 30,000 letters are identical. But a virus that's 96 or 97 percent similar to this one um, is a cousin, and that degree of difference suggests somewhere between years of separate evolution and decades of separate evolution. So scientists, having found those coronaviruses that are that similar, have not found and they know they have not found the immediate progenitor virus of, of this virus. They haven't found it in a wild animal, not yet. And they haven't found it in a laboratory. Uh-huh. There's no evidence of this virus, having been worked on in a laboratory prior to its uh, emergence in humans in December of 2019.
0: There was a lack of transparency from the uh, Chinese government in the early days, which we'll, we'll mm. come to. But there's also this very early focus on the wet market in Wuhan. And did that early focus cause us to lose evidence that might have later been very useful in determining whether this, in fact, started the market or not?
1: Well, um, I would say the contrary. There was a focus on the market from the beginning, and we lost very important evidence. But we lost that evidence because Chinese authorities closed that market on January first, 2020. And they ran all the vendors of wild animals being sold alive for food. They ran them out of there, and they did not seize those live wild animals and sample them for the possibility of finding this virus. Um, There was, if if you want to accuse Chinese authorities of a cover-up, there's a cover-up, I would say, seeming cover-up anyway right there. Um, The fact that wild animals and people who were working in that market at the very beginning were not systematically sampled um, for every evidence of the virus and those those genomes um, sequenced. Um, some sampling was done in days following, environmental sampling, mm. but not sampling, well, and, and sampling of some animals, but not the wild animals that had been there alive at the time the market was closed. They later sampled rats and cats that were running around the closed market. Mm -hmm. Uh, They swabbed surfaces on doors. They swabbed cages and they found evidence of the virus, fragments of the RNA uh, genome of the virus in various different places, in particular in the area of the market, the Southwestern corner of the market where the wild animals had been on sale live for food. But we did lose a lot of evidence for lack of sampling those wild animals themselves.
0: I'm talking to author and science writer David Kwaman. You can read his piece on the ongoing mystery of COVID's origin in the New York Times magazine. We can probably imagine what the Chinese government uh, might have to benefit from um, covering things up in the lab. But were there incentives for them to cover up what was happening in that wet market?
1: Yes, there were, and I think that's a point that hasn't been sufficiently made. Hmm. Yes, if the virus spilled over from a laboratory, the scientific authorities had incentive, had a motive for covering that up. But what people don't recognize adequately is that if the virus spilled over from a wild animal that was on sale illegally, as they were, as those animals were in that laboratory, in that Market, excuse me, in that market um, with officials who were supposed to enforce the laws looking the other way in support of what in total is a $70 billion annual wildlife for food traffic in China. If those authorities looked the other way and this thing spilled over from a wild animal, then there was great incentive to cover that up because. People had committed malfeasance, presumably, failing to do their jobs, failing to enforce the wildlife traffic laws. And the result was this, by this scenario, um, the result was this terrible catastrophe. So either way, there was incentive for a cover-up by Chinese authorities, not by Chinese scientists, but by Chinese officials.
0: You mentioned earlier that public opinion all over the world shows actually majority of people believe the origin of the virus is a lab leak. There are a few kind of key events which may have helped with that. One of them involves the comedian John Stewart uh, on the Stephen Colbert yeah. show.
1: That's right, that's right. In June of, I think it was twenty twenty. When was that? Twenty twenty
0: one. Yeah, June twenty twenty one. Twenty
1: twenty one. Yeah, um, John Stewart went on the Colbert show. And uh, as I say in the piece with um, um, with sublime confidence and um, transcendent shallowness, uh, (laughs) he said, um, look at the name, look at the name, look at the name. All it takes is looking at the name. Uh, And he meant look at the name of the laboratory. Um, And he got the name wrong. He was trying to talk about the Wuhan Institute of Virology, um, which is a research institution in the city of Wuhan, about seven miles from the market, where uh, research on coronaviruses that uh, are found in animals has been done, and he was arguing that because there is a Wuhan Institute of Virology in the town where this pandemic began, the uh, the proximity, that coincidence, was enough to settle the question. As I say, he got the name of the the, the research institute wrong. He called it the the Wuhan Coronavirus Respiratory laboratory or something like that so he was sloppy with his facts apparently um and uh but you know millions of people watch the colbert show millions of people admire john stewart on on both sides of the political spectrum i suppose Um, and that was the sort of i would say irresponsible glibness that helped contribute in the minds of a lot of people who don't have much information mm. about the science, science of this question, help persuade them that oh, it must have been a lab leak. John Stewart says it's a lab leak. Oh, it started in the city of Wuhan. There's an Institute of Virology. It must have come from there. That's um, that's not digging very deeply into the evidence, to put it politely.
0: In fact, even the idea of polling people as to what where they think the virus came from it's it's I mean, science isn't a popularity contest, right?
1: <laughs> right? That's we right. We yes. just take yeah. a
0: vote on theories yeah. based on our vibes.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm. I talked to a, a, a very uh, respected science reporter, a colleague of mine, John Cohen, uh, who reports for the journal Science, and he's covered this story from the beginning. And he and I were talking about this. And I, I told him about my two questions. You know, where did the virus come from and why this disparity between Empirical evidence and public opinion and and John Cohen said to me, I don't care what public opinion thinks. This is not a question to be decided by a popularity contest. Mm. I don't care. I care about the scientific evidence. Um, but I was curious enough to to care indeed about why it is people have embraced um, in such numbers the lab leak uh, story, and as I say in the piece, I think ultimately it's because this has been not a contest." between bodies of evidence but a contest between stories and the lab leak story has appeal to a lot of people they're bad guys um, there's mystery there's <laughs> corrupt, there's scheming nefarious yeah. conspiracies all of those things that you want in a good story
0: so for the average person listening who wants to rise above the political noise and uh, and the popularity contest, what are some important things in the timeline to consider?
1: Oh, well, there are a lot of them, and I go through those in the piece. But let me just single out one, Jesse. Um, there is a study that was done um, to try and understand the evolutionary history of the original SARS virus, the one that spilled over into humans in mm-hmm. two thousand and three, and scared the bejesus out of the world. The first SARS virus, SARS one, um, and it spread from China to to Canada, to uh, Bangkok, to Beijing uh, in China, from um, from Hong Kong. And it infected 8,000 people, killed 800, but it could have been much, much worse. So it was an important virus, a coronavirus, related at about the 76% level to this virus. But in 2018, there were some, some scientists led by a fellow named Jay Kui in, in China who wanted to understand the family tree of that virus. This is before COVID mm-hmm. now, 2018. And he and a number of colleagues looked at 60 different coronaviruses that had been found in bats between 2011 and 2016 through research done by the Wuhan Institute of Virology, among others, 60 different coronaviruses. And they they did their best to sequence those, but they only could partially sequence them with the technology they had in 2018. And they wrote a paper about it. Um, Here are these 60 coronaviruses and SARS 1 should be seen in the context of them. They couldn't get the paper published because they hadn't completely sequenced all the genomes. And they tried and tried several journals, couldn't get the paper published. It was just a manuscript. So they finally gave up on that particular manuscript. They had other things to do. And they took their genome, their partial genomes from those 60 coronaviruses, and they put them into a deep freeze database called GenBank with an embargo of four years. No one but them could work on these data for four years to retain a little bit of their uh, proprietary right to this data. So for four years, those 60 coronaviruses sat unknown to the world in GenBank. And then in October of 2022, the embargo expired and suddenly those data became public and people looked at them. 2022, they looked at these 60 coronaviruses that had been filed away in 2018, Mm -hmm. and the COVID virus was not there. So it was not being worked on either by the Wuhan Institute of Virology or by anybody else that allowed them access to their coronavirus data as of 2018. The virus was just not there. And this virus cannot have leaked from a laboratory unless it was in a laboratory. And here is evidence, 60 different viruses strong, suggesting that at least in 2018, this virus, our COVID virus, was not in any of the laboratories that are suspected of having leaked it.
0: So if it did come from an animal, what are the chances that we will find that animal version of the virus?
1: Well... I sigh because uh, it's very important that we try to find the animal source of the virus, but it's entirely possible that we don't. Sometimes it takes a long time. Some people say, well, it's been three and a half years. If we were going to find it in a wild animal, we would have found it by now. No, actually not. That argument suggests that people don't know the history of emerging diseases, emerging viruses. The, um, The original SARS virus, It took 17 years for them to identify the animal host that was carrying that. 17 years. Uh, For the Marburg virus, which is a very dangerous virus related to Ebola virus, it took 42 years for them to find that that virus has its natural host in the Egyptian fruit bat. 42 years. So... Um, it's possible that it could take 42 years of looking in animals before we find the natural host of this virus, or we might never find it. This virus might even go extinct in the wild if it's carried, for instance, by a very rare species of bat. It's carried at low prevalence, so that only 5% of those bats are carrying the virus. And those bats due to the terrible things that we're doing to bats and other wildlife, um, and not just in China, but around the world, that, that bat lineage could go extinct before we find this virus or the virus could go extinct in that bat lineage. So we have to keep looking. We shouldn't be surprised if five years, 10 years, 15 years pass and we haven't found it. We need to keep looking and hopefully we'll find it, but we might never.
0: Why do we keep coming back to bats of all the wild animals in China?
1: For a very good reason, Jesse. Um, bats, for, for a variety of reasons, um, are more than um, a little bit involved. As the the, the term is, as reservoir host is the natural host of viruses that spill over and become dangerous pathogens in humans. Bats seem to be overly represented as. The hosts of these viruses, Marburg virus I mentioned comes from bats. Um, Hendra virus in Australia comes from large fruit bats. Nipah virus in Bangladesh and surrounding countries has been found in bats. Rabies viruses carried uh, to a great degree by bats, and there are others. Australian bat lyssavirus. So bats, bats, bats. There are a lot of these dangerous viruses that have come to us from bats. Are are should we demonize bats should we blame bats should we punish bats no we should leave bats alone and try to understand why these viruses have come from them one reason is because bats are an extraordinarily diverse order of mammals there are more than 1400 species of bats and that means uh they are the most diverse order of Mammals second only to rodents. One in six, one in five, maybe, species of mammal is a species of bat. So there are just lots of kinds of bats out there carrying lots of kinds of viruses. But they also, because they're flying mammals, their immune systems have have been reduced, have been muted. And I won't try and explain why that is, but for physiological reasons, the stress of flying has caused evolution to to downregulate, to huh. mute bats' immune systems. So they are more likely to be carrying dangerous um, pathogens like these viruses and having no immune response to them themselves, carrying them and continuing on their way without suffering fever, without suffering disease, just carrying these viruses. So a couple of different reasons make bats uh, seem to be overly represented as the, the hosts of these dangerous viruses. That said, Again, we should not blame the bats. We should not punish the bats. We should not try and solve this problem by getting rid of bats, but by leaving bats alone.
0: Uh, briefly, to finish, you've said pretty unequivocally that you believe it's likely this is a spillover from an animal population to humans. What is what is the best theory that it wasn't that? What's the most compelling theory for you that it was a lab leak?
1: Well, as I say. I'm perfectly ready to admit that it's a possibility. Lab leaks happen, as I say, in this piece. There have been hundreds or thousands, depending on where you draw the threshold of of lab leaks um, uh, in the course of the study of viruses. We need to keep studying dangerous viruses in labs. And there's always a possibility that by a needle stick injury of by, of a researcher or some sort of a misfunction of equipment or something, um, uh, a virus could leak out of a laboratory and infect people. So, is it possible? Yes, yes, it's absolutely possible. And we need to recognize that. And we should continue to investigate it. But I just don't see a strong argument for it until someone shows the world here was this virus, the immediate progenitor of the COVID virus, being studied in this particular laboratory. If it's not in the lab, it can't have leaked from the lab.
0: The story is called The Ongoing Mystery of COVID's Origins. It's been written by David Quaman. It's in the New York Times Magazine. David, thanks so much for being so generous with your time today and for all the work you've put into this.
1: Jesse, thanks for your interest in the good questioning. Uh, it's been a pleasure to chat with you.